Would you join me in prayer, please? Holy Spirit, we thank you and we praise you for these ancient words which you inspired and that you preserved for us throughout time in order to instruct them. And so, Lord, we pray that you would impress them upon our hearts right now, that you would open up our eyes and help us to be able to receive the truth from the living God so that we might worship him and give all adoration to him through Jesus Christ. We pray this through the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to begin our study in the book of Genesis. And early in the week, I sent a text to Den and Clardy that I was struggling to figure out how to launch this series, to which he sent back a snarky reply saying he was laughing and found it ironic that I would struggle with how to begin a book about beginnings. Hardy har har, Denon. Everyone be sure to give Denon a hug before you exit this morning because he loves that. Whenever one starts to preach through a book, there are two ways to approach it. One way is just to start with chapter 1, verse 1, and plow on through to chapter 50, verse 26. The other way is to start with all the background information of the book that gets the context set up for the text itself. For example, when you have some knowledge of the Battle of Gettysburg and what it achieved, then Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address makes a much greater impact. There's no wrong way to begin a book of the Bible as long as the preacher is bringing out the true meaning from the Word of God. Now, I've chosen this morning to do a combination of both. Rather than just do an information dump of technical data on you, I'm going to present you with the relevant information as we go. But by doing a combination of both, we're only going to be able to make it through the first clause of verse 1. In the beginning, God. Now, for your own sanity, this will be a rare exception. I promise I will cover more than a single clause in the days ahead. Genesis full of nice stories which we'll cover within a single sermon. So don't panic. But our author Moses wants us to know something from the outset with the very first words of his book. So in order to even understand that, we need to have a little background information about the author and what his purposes were in writing this. And that is where we're headed with these first four words this morning. Who wrote them? Why did they write them? And what is of primary importance in what they are communicating? These are the three questions we want to answer this morning. So let's begin with the first question. Who wrote this first book of the Bible? That's going to be an easy one, Moses. What do we know about him? Well, we're given a brief biography about him in the first three chapters of Exodus. Moses was a Jew, a descendant of Abraham through the tribe of Levi. And prior to his birth, the Jews, who were once welcomed into Egypt, over a period of 400 years became subjected to the king of Egypt called Pharaoh. In one episode of Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 1, and that seems to be motivated here by population control, Pharaoh ordered the death of all male-born babies. And Moses was born during this period, and his mother hid him only to have the daughter of Pharaoh discover him, adopt him, and raise him as her own son. So Moses is raised and he is educated in the palaces of Egypt. 
but he still held tenaciously to his own Jewish identity. And in a moment of pride, he murders an Egyptian and then flees to the wilderness to escape punishment for his crime. Moses should have died in obscurity, a shepherd whom no one knew. But in Exodus chapter 3, he has an encounter with the living God who tasks him with the responsibility of leading the Jews, whom this God calls his chosen people, out of the slavery of Egypt and into the land which he's going to establish them into a great nation. We know from the rest of the book of Exodus that Moses does precisely that. God's people exit Egypt, and 40 years later, they are established in the land that God promised to Moses' ancestor Abraham. Now, it's beyond the scope of this sermon to explain why this took 40 years when the new land was only a few weeks' travel from Egypt. But during this long period of endurance, Moses became the mediator between God and his chosen people. He was the leader and the spokesperson for God. Think of the logistical nightmare of trying to herd together nearly one million former slaves of men, women, and children, both elderly and infants. But this was whom Moses was tasked to lead. He was not only responsible for their physical care, but also their spiritual care. It was vital for Moses to collect all the information that God had revealed to him for the posterity of Israel. So Moses collected this information into what has been, uh, become called the first five books of the Bible that we refer to as the Pentateuch, or sometimes referred to as the books of the law. These five books contain the origin of God's chosen people, the promises that he made to them, the history of the Exodus and why they were having to wander for 40 years, the civil law and how they were to treat one another, and the spiritual commandments and how they were to interact with their God. All of this was information that the Lord God wanted Moses to communicate to his chosen people. We know this because God commands Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 27, to write his words down. Now, if you will, turn to Joshua chapter 8 in your Bibles. This is found on page 184 of your pew Bible. Joshua chapter 8. Once there is a firm foothold in this new land for God's people, their new leader Joshua, who replaces Moses, leads the people into renewing their covenant with God. And in doing so, they read these first five books of the Bible, which are often referred to as the Law of Moses, because he was the one who authored them. So we read here in Joshua chapter 8, verse 30, At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it's written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. That's quoting Deuteronomy 27, verse 5. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. Most likely these were the Ten Commandment portion of the law in Exodus 20, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers, their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. And just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. 
And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse according to all that's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So by the time Joshua crosses the Jordan River, these five books of Moses appear to be complete. Now, when we say that Moses authored the Pentateuch, that doesn't mean that Moses had to write down every single word of it personally. Our understanding of divine inspiration doesn't have to be that restrictive. It's very possible that Moses supervised a group of scribes to write down his accounts, assist him in in composing the words in a format that was memorable for the people, and even collecting and gathering information to include within his account. But our concept of inspiration does mean that Moses was directly responsible for ensuring that every word recorded were God's words. By the time of the New Testament, no one doubted the authorship of Moses. John wrote in his gospel, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And the Jews believed that Moses' words were divine to the point that Moses' words were God's words. Even Jesus' opponents believed this. In John chapter 9, verse 29, they approached Jesus saying, We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. But more important than the Jews... Jesus, the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity, believed that Moses was the composer of the Pentateuch. We see Jesus teaching from it on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Jesus viewed the Pentateuch as being authoritative. We see this when he instructed the leper that he healed in Matthew chapter 8, verse 4. And Jesus said this to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. The purity law that he's referring to is found in Leviticus. So even the Lord Jesus believed that Moses was the author of these books of the law. Now, when it comes to Genesis... One of the facts that we have to come to grips with is that Moses did not witness a single historical event that is recorded in his book. While I'm open to the possibility that Moses was somehow granted special visions of what happened, I seriously doubt that that was the case. Most likely, Moses received these stories through oral tradition. Sadly, people in Western cultures do not take these stories as being reliable. They tend to liken them to the party game telephone that we played as children. You know the game I'm talking about, right? One person whispers a couple of sentences in one person's ear, and then they do the same to another until it's passed along to the end of the room, and the original message is completely altered by the time it gets to the end. We tend to think of stories passed along like that because we do not live in an oral culture. But that is not the case for communities who thrive on oral traditions. They are very different than the game telephone. First of all, there is no control in that game. The message simply goes from one person to another. In true oral tradition, the stories are told within community. And they are usually told among people who have a strong interest in truth-telling as the stories convey deep meaning for them. 
So they would correct each other for accuracy as the story was spoken aloud. Who among us has not had someone incorrectly quote from a movie only to have someone else correct that quote as a control? Second, and ironically, we forget that the early education process was one of rote memory. A teacher instructing pupils to repeat facts word for word. Kenneth Bailey, who was a theological linguist, did some fascinating studies in North Africa among Bedouin tribes prior to the advent of the internet and mobile phones. He went to different villages to ask to hear a particular story that had been circulated by oral tradition. And the accuracy down to the minute details were astonishing despite the fact that the stories were told in different locations. These were a people who had a vested interest in preserving their heritage. It was part of their identity. They took great pains to preserve it. And no doubt, Moses had the same type of upbringing as his sister and mother who cared for him in Pharaoh's palace, regaled him with stories of Abraham and Adam and Isaac and and Jacob, so much so that Moses felt his ancestry of being Jewish made him distinct enough to murder an Egyptian. And in a time period when written documents were expensive and rare, he was banking on oral tradition, like we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6, to pass down the commandments of the law to the next generation. But just because Moses collected these stories from oral tradition does not mean that the words he captured were no less inspired. The words that he recorded were God's words. Now, I'm going to go straight to the top authority on this one. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, or you can look at this again in your worship guides. This is found on page 824 of your pew Bible. I was asked to preach from these words at a wedding recently, and it made me take note of this concept once again, especially concerning Genesis. Now, the context is Jesus being challenged by the Pharisees over what constitutes a righteous divorce stemming from Deuteronomy chapter 24. A point in the discussion is made both between Jesus and the Pharisees, both in verses 7 and 8, that there's no doubt among them that Moses was the author of these words. But look at Jesus' response to their question. It comes from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He answered... Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? This is a paraphrase from Genesis 1. And now he gives a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Verse 5, And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The key words for us are the two words that start verse 5. And said. Jesus believed it was the creator that gave the words from Genesis 2.24 and Moses was the one to record them. Jesus believed the words that Moses captured were God's words, the creator's words. He also believed that the marriage between Adam and Eve was a real historical event. But we'll have to save that for Genesis 2 when we get there. So very quickly, let's recap about our author here, because it's going to explain his purpose for writing Genesis. 
Moses is living in the middle of the second millennia B.C. He has been tasked by God to deliver the chosen people out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. And in between, God has passed down laws through Moses to instruct his chosen people how they will be known as his and that he is their God. This means Moses needs to get down some record of these stories that provide an origin of how all of this came about. He needs to make sure that that what he gives these people is an accurate account that can be distinguished from the pagan myths that they had been exposed to in Egypt. Hence another reason to let a generation die out before entering the promised land. Even when using that phrase, promised land would produce questions like, what promise? And who promised such a land to whom? Genesis records these origins, and it will answer questions about where did the world come from? Where did men and women come from? How did the Israelites become chosen people? How did they even get named Israelites? How did they end up in Egypt in the first place? Why was there a land that they could call their own waiting for them? All of this would be important to capture in order for the people to maintain their identity and know how to worship God as they move forward. So I need to reiterate the sequence here. Genesis should be read and studied in light of Moses' time period from the Exodus to the conquest. We are not being anachronistic when we draw information from the other four books of the Pentateuch because they were all written in the same time period. The best way that I can compare this is to the Star Wars franchise. Seriously. In fact, Kyle's perking up over here as soon as I said the words Star Wars over here. If you were alive when the original movies came out, then you all know that we started at episode four, and we followed the storyline to its conclusion in the next two films, kind of like the story from Exodus through the wilderness to the border of the promised land in Deuteronomy. And then later... We're given episodes one through three that gave us the backstory leading up to episode four. In fact, if you read the very last verse in Genesis, this is what we read. Genesis chapter 50, verse 26. So Joseph died. Being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's a strange way to end a book because it's not the end of the story. It's not the end. It's not until we get to Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, that we understand that Moses and the people are traipsing around the wilderness with a coffin full of Joseph's bones based on a promise to him from Genesis chapter 50, verse 25. And that coffin won't be buried until the conquest in Joshua chapter 24. Genesis provides an explanation to the children, probably wondering, why in the world, with all that we got going on, are we carrying a coffin around with us? Well, Genesis explains things like that. That is what it does. It provides the relevant background to Moses' current situation. But unlike the Star Wars franchise, we are not following the lives of heroic individuals. The story is not about people. It's about a marvelous, magnificent God who creates, who sustains his creation, who claims the people for himself, who preserves and protects that people as he guides them to their divinely promised destination. The story is not about Adam, nor Noah, nor Abraham, nor Jacob, or Joseph. The story is about God. 
This is Moses' primary purpose for recording Genesis. He wants Yahweh's people to know what kind of God he is and what he's capable of doing, especially in light of the false religion that they had been immersed in. Moses wants them to know there is no God like our God. And that should give them faith and courage as God completes his mission through them to establish his people in his land. And that's what it should do for us. It should bolster our faith to endure and to live for God's holiness and for his glory. This is a narrative about God who is worthy of us living for. And like we read in Deuteronomy 6, perfect for a child dedication day for sure. I didn't plan it this way. Moses is recording this so that this information about this great, magnificent God can be passed down from one generation to another. So with all of that laid before us, let's take a quick look at these first four words, at least in English, in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. From the very outset, Moses is telling his reader that this God, his God, the one true God, is outside his creation. God existed before the heavens and the earth. The phrase heavens and earth is what we call a merism. That's another fancy $5 word that means a contrasting phrase to cover the whole. Like we might say this encompasses everything from A to Z. When Moses tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he is saying God not only created all of it, he existed before there was anything created. And by revealing this, he is saying God is distinctly outside of his creation. He is holy. He is set apart. He is not dependent upon his creation. He needs nothing from it whatsoever. The word we translate here as created is a Hebrew word that's only used to describe God in the act of creating. And Moses gives a scale here for the type of power that is at our God's disposal. He created everything. This is completely unlike the cosmologies of other ancient cultures. Their gods created out of pre-existing material stuff, like one another's bodies. Some of them needed the services of other gods to complete some aspect of their creation, such as having intercourse in order to birth a universe. But our God doesn't need anyone or anything. He is one, and he creates by his power alone. But we need to couple this all-powerful God with what Moses already knew about him in his interactions with his creator. Even when we read the Ten Commandments, we discover this is a God who takes seriously his purpose of why he created us. And that was for his own glory. He wants to bless us with the created things, but he does not want them to become a snare to us that we would worship them. He wants us to worship him for our own benefit because nothing is greater than our God. That's why he says, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. It's why he's a jealous God because he knows we'll settle for lesser gods all the time that will never satisfy us. Who among us would question the goodness of his commandments as we interact with one another? I think it's a good thing that we don't steal from one another. I think it's a good thing not to commit adultery. I think it's a good thing to protect life. 
All of these are connected to attributes related to Yahweh's character. He is a giving God. He is a faithful God. He is a life-giving God. And by the way, the Lord emphasizes our truthful for no other by not bearing false witness. And unlike the deities of the pagans, God never lies, nor does he deceive. Numbers 23, 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said and will he not do it or he has spoken and will he not fulfill it? The God of Genesis always keeps his word. And when in the New Testament Jesus tells us in a passage such as John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We can bank on that because our God never lies. Your salvation through Jesus is secure, believer, and you can depend upon it because our God always, always, always tells the truth. Now, I'm not going to have time to dwell upon this today, but Lord willing, in the next two sermons, we will see that the Lord has created an ideal environment for humanity, an environment that allows us to flourish and dwell in safety with Him. And it's not God that spoils that, but it is us through our sin. But even in our rebellion of sin, of constant disobedience to this good creator God, He still wants to interact with His people. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. This is found on page 74 of your pew Bible. We have this beautiful story here that Moses records for us. And if you're not familiar with the background of it, Moses first descends from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. When he gets down, he finds out that while he's been away, the people got impatient and decided rather than hearing from God himself how he wants to be worshipped, they decided we'll just copy what the Egyptians did. We'll make a golden calf and we'll worship that. We'll worship our God through that golden calf. And so, of course, this creates uh, a judgment at this point. Moses gets angry. Uh, He smashes the commandments after he sees the heartache of how the people have become distraught. But God is giving them a second chance. Moses goes up to the mountain once again, and he receives the law a second time. And as he receives this giving of the law a second time, a second chance, Moses hears the voice of God say this in Exodus 34, verse 6. This is what the Lord proclaims here. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, and when you see those capital letters of the Lord, that stands for Yahweh, the, the covenant name of God. Yahweh the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, now I wish I had time to unpack all of these attributes, but look at how God reveals himself to Moses. Most of us would tend to gravitate to the second part of verse 7. But that's not God's first inclination and of primary importance to him. He says, after they just failed, after the people just blew it, he says, I am merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. 
He is abounding in his steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word hesed, which refers to his never-ending covenantal love to his people. It's a love that says, I love you not for what you do for me or have done for me, but because I choose to love you. And in this declaration, he is faithful. Yes, he is holy, and he expects holiness from his people. He expects his people to be set apart from the rest of the world. But even when we fail in that, look at what he wants us to do. His steadfast love compels him to desire forgiveness of transgression and sin. Now please understand, forgiveness in this context requires atonement. These words follow the laws of atonement in the book of Exodus that required a blood sacrifice. Those animal sacrifices were not because the Creator God is cruel to animals, but to demonstrate just how great the offense was of sin to a holy God. Now, no one wants to sacrifice. That means we're giving up something that we like. We certainly wouldn't want the displeasure of slaughtering an animal on top of that. But it does give us an understanding of the magnitude of our offense. And Yahweh's forgiveness requires such a sacrifice for all of our sins, every single one of them. That should be startling to us. It should overwhelm us. It should make us ask, who is sufficient for such things? But that is the beauty of having a God whose inclination is to be merciful and gracious. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to him that covers every single sin. Close out here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. This is found on page 1006 of your pew Bible. Our gracious God knew the magnitude of our offense and that we could not cover it. So he provides the sacrifice for us. His one and only son, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What a great, merciful, gracious, and steadfast, loving God who provides everything we need to be forgiven through his son Jesus. And all we have to do is believe it, to place our faith in this truth, and we are reconciled to this holy God. Oh, friend, what hope is found in the words, in the beginning, God? It means this world is not random. It means this world wasn't meant or intended to be evil. It means this world is not beyond redemption. But because God is the initiator and he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, 
He is holy and just, honest and true, and abounding in steadfast love. It means that your soul and your troubles that you're going through right now are not beyond redemption. In the beginning, God. I hope that will feed your soul this week. Let's pray. Oh, just four words. And yet, Lord, your Holy Spirit has taught us already through this that you are the author of all things, that you are the creator, you put everything into motion, that you rule over it all, that you are sovereign. It also lets us know that that things are not out of your control, that, that chaos doesn't reign, but that you are sovereign and have a plan. And as we read through scripture, you've had a plan all along in order to redeem your people. And you have done so through your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Oh God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that we have hope that we can get up out of bed in the mornings. We can face the world because our God is with us. Our God is with us. And just as Moses was teaching the people that this God who travels along with them to the wilderness to their ultimate destination of the divine promise, We have the same God traveling with us, leading us to our divine destination to be with you forever and ever. And so, Lord, may we worship you this day. May we give you all the honor and glory that is due you as we celebrate who you are. We are able to do so through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice. Amen.